Today's sermon text is found in the book of Mark, chapter 14, and beginning in verse 43, it says, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you for this morning, for um, this family that you have gathered together from um, all over, um, all over every spectrum that there is, God. But um, we know that we need no greater unifying force than um, the blood of your son and and the love that you have given all of us. And um, we pray for this morning, God, may we have open ears and receptive hearts to um, not to sit here and and to want to be entertained, God, but to be um, fully in and fully uh, ready to receive exactly what it is you have for us this morning. And um, God, I pray for Mason as he brings the word that um, you will tell him exactly what it is that you want him to share with us. God, may we fall more in love with you this morning as we learn about your son. We learn about the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. God, receive this offering. May we joyfully give out of um, what you have given us, knowing that it's all better in your hands anyways. God, we pray for um, our res kids, all the kids in classes, that um, you are already drawing them to yourself. And God, I pray for um, their teachers, that they know that um, little church is just as important as big church. And um, may they teach well, may we all love well, serve well. Um, And God, we praise you for this. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, res kids, you guys are dismissed to go to class. Uh, ushers, you guys are good to go ahead and receive the morning's tithes and offerings. Uh, man, I'm really excited to preach. Um, however, I've been sick as a dog all week. And so uh, I haven't been this sick since my honeymoon. Uh, Holly and I went to England and Ireland, and I got sick. And 
I was hacking. Some of you probably saw me really embarrassingly hacking in the front row during the music. And I had a f- quick flashback I wanted to share. Uh, we were in England. I think it was the morning. We were driving from our cute little B&B in Oxford uh, to London, a nice little town in uh, England, southern England, that I drove in. Crazy. So we're driving, and uh, we stop at a little like a rest area thing for breakfast, and I feel like death warmed over, and I'm hacking stuff up, you know. I'm a big American guy, attractive American guy, but a big American guy nonetheless. And so um, we're sitting at this rest area having some food, and this really, really proper English lady comes up with her son, and her son's on the phone, and she's sitting kind of like a little too close to us for considering how empty the building is. And um, I'm just sick, and I, I hack. I don't know she's there. And she goes, oh. She went, you're disgusting. And I was like, yeah, 1776, I don't really care. And then, um, oh, you are just disgusting. Did you hear that? To her son, did you hear this kid? Oh, my God, we got to go. And she gets up and leaves. And Holly's back into this whole thing, and I'm like, I'm humiliated. I know, I'm disgusting. England, I'm, America's here, and we're ugly and sick. And so I had a flashback to that humiliation I felt on our honeymoon while I was hacking in the front row. So please forgive me if my voice does something weird this morning. The title of today's sermon is The Silent Li- Lamb and Roaring Lion. The Silent Lamb and Roaring Lion. Uh, when I think about the themes in our text today, this theme of arrest, I think about a Russian writer uh, who was born, I think, in the early 20th century, and he died in like 2008. His name is uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn was a, an outspoken critic of the USSR. He wrote novels, he wrote um, uh, essays and things like that. And um, one of his more famous works is called The Gulag Archipelago. And in The Gulag Archipelago, he sort of recounts his experience of being arrested by uh, Soviet forces. And there's one sentence that he uses to describe his arrest that has uh, really resonated with literary uh, critics throughout the years. I'm going to read that one sentence and kind of frame our mind thinking about this idea of arrest. Solzhenitsyn writes, that's what arrest is. It is a blinding flash and a blow which shifts the present instantly into the past and the impossible into omnipotent actuality. That's what arrest is. It's a blinding flash and a blow which shifts the present instantly into the past and the impossible into omnipotent actuality. For Solzhenitsyn, when the the Soviet sort of um, police knock on his door and arrest him, he says it's this violent blow across his self, right, where everything about him is suddenly in the past. All his hopes, all his dreams, everything he wanted to do, it's all, it, it all doesn't matter anymore because the all-powerful state has finally come to his door. This impossible scenario is now this omnipotent actuality. I love how he says that. This impossible scenario is this all-powerful reality that governs everything about his life. And when you're arrested uh, by this all-powerful state, everything in your life is in the past. You find yourself completely overwhelmed by this power. You're taken aback. You're shocked. If you're innocent, you're victimized. And most importantly, you're robbed of your volition. You don't go where you want to go when you want to go there. And I think about this definition of arrest. I think about this because Jesus' arrest could not have been any more different. 
Jesus never comes across as a victim of circumstance. Jesus is not taken aback. In fact, Jesus is in control. Jesus is certainly not robbed of volition. In fact, Jesus' steps are intentionally towards the cross because he is following God the Father with every step he takes. He's going where he fully intends to go, and he holds all control and all power at every moment of what will transpire in our text this morning. I love going through these familiar uh, verses here early in the summer. I pray that we'll have eyes to see things that matter. I pray that in these moments, these verses wouldn't just be things that we already know, but these verses would show us more about the one who reigns in our hearts. Jesus in our text this morning will be betrayed by one of his closest friends and forsaken by the rest of them. He will then receive an absolute joke of a trial at the hands of religious rulers and be condemned to death, which they shouldn't even have the authority to do. Like a lamb before his shearers, Jesus will remain silent, but like a lion before mortal man, he will hold all power. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, you might learn a little bit about how to live this morning. You might learn a little bit about how to stand up amongst false accusations, but you're gonna learn a lot of bit about the one we live for. Look this morning at what Christ has done for us and for our salvation. As we approach the text, there are two sort of sections that we'll be looking at, verses 43 to 52. We'll call this section betrayed by his friends, and then we're gonna look at verses 53 to 65, and we'll call this section betrayed by the system betrayed by his friends and betrayed by the system. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, it's worth noting how quickly this all transpires, right? Jesus and his disciples have just uh, eaten the Last Supper. Christ has sort of observed the final Passover meal. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. They've gone off into the garden to pray, and here Jesus is about to be betrayed. And before sundown on the next day, Jesus will be dead. Sometimes when we read this passage in isolation, we miss just how quickly all these events transpire at the end of Christ's life. Judas shows up in our text this morning, and Jesus knows he's coming. Remember, the religious rulers are trying to kill Jesus, but they got a problem. Just a little bit ago, Jesus has come into town, and a couple hundred thousand people probably have been like, hail the king of the Jews, right? The, the Messiah has come, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. He has come. And so that Jesus is a profoundly popular figure. He's done incredible works and preached sermons and uh, messages that have resonated with the common man. And so the religious rulers know that they're going to have a tough time killing Jesus sort of publicly, especially during the Passover. They needed a mole. They needed a traitor. They need someone who's on the inside to turn on Jesus and How about that? They got one. Surely this was not happenstance. So Judas comes with a gang of bruisers who are going to make sure they get Jesus back to the Sanhedrin. We're going to talk about the Sanhedrin in just a little bit. But you'll see there is so much irony in this text. You'll see that in a moment. How does Judas betray Jesus? With signs of honor and affection. 
I said you might learn a little bit about how to live this morning. One thing you might learn is that it's possible to show signs of honor and affection while having a rotten heart. It's possible to show signs of honor and affection while having a rotten heart. He comes and he kisses Jesus with this uh, sort of gang of uh, this sort of quasi-police force that has come from the Sanhedrin with Judas. After he kisses him and addresses him as a rabbi, they seized him. And then verse 47 uh, is, is odd. <laughs> it's sort of next level stuff here, man. Uh, a, a particular disciple, Mark doesn't tell us who this is, uh, picks up a sword and slices a servant's ear off. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who this is, but if we had to guess, who do we think it might be? Could it be Peter? I think so. John's uh, explanation of this, um, this sort of scene in the Passion narrative is really, really good. If you want to flip over to John 18 in your Bibles, um, he sheds some light, in, in my opinion, on why Judas might have felt so empowered to just rise up and hack this brother's ear off. Right? I mean, Peter, sorry, Peter. Peter goes full Mike Tyson on this brother, and like why and how and, and what's going on. But in John 18, uh, look with me in verse 4. In verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, Check it out. They drew back and what? Fell to the ground. They drew back and the text says they fell to the ground. What an incredible moment this is of mortal man in the presence of holy God. The people who come to arrest Jesus, when Jesus says, I am he, they just fall out right there on the ground. And so I just wonder, and again, I'm, I'm putting John's gospel with Mark's gospel, which sometimes is helpful, but sometimes isn't. I just wonder if Peter sees this happen, right? And he's like, oh, this is it, man. This is game time, right? And Jesus says, I am he. They fall out. And, and, and Peter's like, man, I'm so glad I brought my sword, you know? And so he pulls his sword out and he goes to fight because Jesus and his disciples are going to overtake these guys by force. They're laying there and Jesus hacks his ear off. I think Peter uh, very possibly gets uh, a little ahead of himself. John tells us this guy's name is Malchus. He's a servant of the high priest. And Jesus says to Peter, what? Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? Not put your sword away, we're going to go pl you know, play nice with these guys. Not put your sword away, they've won, it's over. Not put your sword away, let's defer to these authorities. No, he says, put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Because I'm going, Jesus is saying, of my own volition. Don't stop me. Peter, this is not what you think it is. Yeah, we're going to win this thing, but we're going to win by losing. Yeah, Peter, we're going to live, but we're going to live by dying. Peter, they're not taking me. Peter, I'm giving myself up as a ransom for many. Peter, there's a cup that I have to drink, the cup of God's wrath, 
And if I don't drink it, there's no one else who can drink it. And if there would be anyone else who could drink it, there's no one else who would drink it. Let's go back to Mark's gospel in verse 48. Jesus addresses these guys. Jesus says to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus says, are you treating me like a common criminal? Like, why'd you bring all these people? What do you expect from me? Do you think I'm going to run away? I'm going to fight back? I mean, Peter's you know, got some issues, but um, I, I'm not going to fight back. And if you've ever been sort of maligned or accused of something you didn't do, think about multiplying that times infinity. And here is the Son of God, God in flesh, God incarnate, being treated like a common criminal. Jesus sort of exposes their hypocrisy. He says that, why are you coming here in the middle of the night? I've been teaching publicly here for two weeks, right? I've been teaching publicly for three years. At any point in that time, you could have come and arrested me. Why here and why now? But nonetheless, what does he say? Let the scriptures be fulfilled. At every twist and at every turn, at every seeming loss, Jesus is saying, they're not taking me, I am going. Jesus says, why didn't you guys come at any other time? Maybe when I was in the temple, maybe when I was over here, maybe when I was at this house, maybe when I was feeding these people. Why didn't you come then? But you come right now. Nevertheless, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is saying, you're here because you are part of a plan that you don't see. You're part of something bigger than what you think is going on. You are just pawns in God's redemptive plan. What you're intending for evil, I am using for the salvation of the world. Verses 50, 51, and 52. Verse 50 is a simple sentence and it has notes of resignation in it, right? And they all left him and fled. And they all left him and fled. We see sort of the, the fight or flight response to conflict that humans tend to have on full display right here in the garden. Uh, Peter is fighting, and then they're all flying. They're all getting away. They're all leaving Jesus. One would betray him, but all would forsake him. And then there's this really odd uh, insertion in verses 51 and 52. Uh, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What's this mean? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, there is some speculation about what this means. So church tradition uh, which in sort of our tradition is really, really helpful, but not authoritative, uh, says that this was possibly Mark. Uh, church tradition said this was possibly Mark. And some go on to say, and I, I wouldn't you know, put all my chips on the table believing this, but um, some say that this is all happening at Mark's home. Uh, that The Last Supper was sort of served in uh, Mark's mother, who's an early believer, that she and her family were one of the leaders who stood up and said, you can host this here. And so it's quite possible that there was a commotion of people and Mark is sort of at home and wants to see what's going on and he comes and then even he flees away naked. But that's pure speculation. We can't know that. However, I, I think that it serves a literary function in this text 
The literary function is to show the complete and utter desertion of Christ. Even the bystander, even the guy who has nothing to do with him, wants nothing to do with him. Anyone who's associated with Jesus has left Jesus. Jesus has been forsaken by absolutely everyone he loves. And all alone, he leaves with the guards. Have you ever been forsaken? Have you ever been abandoned? Have you ever been forgotten? Have you ever been rejected? Has anyone ever been ashamed to be with you? I know sometimes I'm with some friends, right, and they've got other friends, and their other friends, you know, pastor bigger and cooler churches than we are, and so when they're with me, they want to they go be with those guys because they're, they don't, I don't want to be with Mason. He's like 12 years old and kind of fat. Like, I don't, I don't want to be with him, you know? They want to be with the guy who, like, looks cool, and they're kind of like, oh, that's sort of that, oh, man, he doesn't think I'm awesome, you know? Have you ever been rejected by other people? Have you ever been deserted by other people? I I want to introduce you this morning to Jesus who was forsaken by everybody he loved. Not only was Jesus betrayed by his friends, in verses 53 to 65, he is betrayed by the system. Look with me in these verses. Before we read them, though, uh, we kind of miss out on this because we don't have a whole lot of Um, context for how law was administered in the Roman Empire and how sort of the law was administered within a Jewish community inside the Roman Empire. And so wherever there was a synagogue, there was a small Sanhedrin. And so what this Sanhedrin was, was a gathering of influential men, influential Jewish men and the community who would sort of be arbiters of cases that would come before them. So uh, maybe like a divorce type of filing or or something like that uh, that that deals with religious and civic life would come to the Sanhedrin and they would rule on it. Much like our system, there was a Sanhedrin in Jerusalem which was sort of the first among equals. It's kind of like our Supreme Court. But if you're thinking in ecclesiastical terms, if you have a Catholic background, think about places where um, there's a bishop of this place, right? There's a bishop of this see, there's a bishop of this see, and then there's a bishop of Rome. The bishop of Rome is just like all the other bishops in one sense, but in one sense he's not, right? Because the bishop of Rome is the pope. That's kind of how the Jerusalem Sanhedrin is working. There's all these little Sanhedrins in all these neighborhoods where there is a synagogue, but the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem is sort of like the, uh, the, the Supreme Court Sanhedrin. It's the first among equal Sanhedrin. It's the, uh, the sort of seat of all the other Sanhedrins. And the the sort of um, legal practices and legal philosophy of the Sanhedrin is described in Deuteronomy. And then it's explicated in another Hebrew text called the Mishnah. And so there are sort of great lengths to which they have gone to ensure justice in their community. There are all all kinds of rules to make sure that the accused gets a fair shake. I'm not going to go over them all, but suffice it to say that almost every single one of those rules would be broken in the trial of Jesus. Where it happens, when it happens, how it happens, who is there, why it happens. I might have said that one already. What they make Jesus do in the trial, it's a complete joke, it's a complete sham, and it's a complete mockery. Verse 55. So verse 53, rather, we'll start just to get some context. They led Jesus to the high priest, Caiaphas, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. 
Remember for a second, right? Remember for a second. You know, we live in a world today where, uh, you know, our, our, our political leaders can't agree on anything. Uh, it's like that here, too. That's not a new phenomenon, right? The Pharisees and Sadducees, like, they hated each other. They did not get along at all. The Pharisees were sort of your religious right type of people, and your Sadducees were sort of your wealthy progressive type of people. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. They denied supernatural power, whereas the Pharisees believed in supernatural things, and the Pharisees were much more um, uh, like the common man of their day. So you've got the Pharisees and Sadducees who see each other as political, religious, social, and mortal enemies, but they have convened a secret meeting of political and spiritual enemies in the middle of the night to exterminate a common threat, and that is Jesus. So they call all these guys who normally wouldn't agree on anything together. And verse 54, I love how Peter's experience is just kind of weaved through the whole text, right? Our whole sermon last week was about Peter, so if you missed that, go back and listen to it. But um, Peter's like the foil to Jesus in these passages, right? Jesus is steady, and Peter, one moment, is sleeping, and the next moment, he's cutting ears off, right? Jesus is going where the Father is calling him to, and Peter is avoiding it at every single turn. Jesus is standing out alone as the only one before the trial, and Peter is doing what right here? He's trying to blend in. Peter had followed him at a distance, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with who? He was sitting with the guards, He was sitting with the people who just kidnapped his rabbi. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Sometimes to be comfortable, we'll blend in with whoever we have to blend in with, but I digress. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. There is so much wrong with that statement in terms of Sanhedrin law. First, they were seeking testimony against Jesus. Well, these guys aren't prosecutors. It's not their job to seek testimony against Jesus. Their job is to hear something that has come to them already. Not only are they seeking actively testimony against Jesus, but they're seeking it for a purpose that they've already found. So they have the sentence, and now they're out there looking for the crime. We're going to kill him. We want him to die. Now what we have to do is manipulate this system so that we can get what we want out of it. They're not supposed to be prosecutors. They're not supposed to have a desired outcome in mind that they're searching for a crime to fit. These things are still true today in some ways. And they can't find anything. They found nothing. And verse 56, though, many people bore false witness against him. So many people lied about Jesus. Surely they had bribed many people and paid them off to come in and present false testimony. But they weren't smart enough to corroborate the false testimonies before they came in. Why, maybe? Because they didn't have time. I mean, look at how rushed this thing is. He's arrested in the middle of the night. He goes to Sanhedrin. He's being tried in the middle of the night illegally, right? They are looking for a desired outcome that is not there. They are treating him like a common criminal. He is not, he's being deprived of all the rights that he would have had. And they're bringing in people who are testifying against him, and they haven't had time to corroborate their stories. One of them says something that sounds kind of like what Jesus said, but it's not what Jesus said. 
three days, I'll tear down the temple in Jerusalem, and then I'll build it back without my hands. It's <laughs> not what he said. It's not what he meant. And it's been a really long time since he even said something that resembles that sentence. Verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. There's nothing here, man. They can't find any basis on which to try Jesus. And the high priest, Caiaphas, has had enough. In verse 60, in an extreme breach of decorum, he stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Have you no answer to make? What do you have to say to these people? Well, one, Jesus can't incriminate himself, right? I mean, our legal system protects these kind of things even today. He's asking Jesus to answer all these just bogus charges. And Jesus sits there, how? Silently. Jesus doesn't speak up. And here's one of my favorite pictures of Jesus in the Gospels, a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, that says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus doesn't try to tell his side of the story. Jesus doesn't try to clear his name. Jesus doesn't try to set the haters straight. The trial's an absolute joke, and anyone with half a brain would see that. 61, sort of part B in 62, the high priest is not going to take his silence as an answer, and the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I absolutely love Jesus' response here. This is why the sermon is titled The Silent Lamb and Roaring Lion. Because in humility and in grace, but in full power, he's asked, Are you the Christ? Are you? And Jesus says simply, echoing the words of Moses, or echoing the words of God to Moses, I am. I am. And you will see me again. I am. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. As he stands before this court of man, this absolute joke of a court of man, Jesus says, I am God, and you will see me again, and I will be your judge. And you will not judge me with unrighteousness but I will judge you with righteousness. I love that Jesus has on his mind hours before his death what's ultimately going to happen. I will return. I will come back on the clouds and I will reign forever. Verses 63 and 65, look at this self-righteous display of anger. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? 
You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. This is the religious rulers. Right? And they're spitting on him. They began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him saying, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. There was an Old Testament prophecy where the Messiah would be able to sort of see blindfolded, be able to prophesy blindfolded, and so they, they made a mockery out of this. They put a blindfold on him, like, hey, prophesy, like he's a circus elephant or something. Hey, prophesy, prophesy, Messiah, if you're the prophet. Show us how cool you are. Show us how powerful you are. Do it, spitting on him, kicking him. And some of the greatest beating and most humiliation Jesus ever received was at the hands of religious people. In fact, without religious people, we have to wonder if the cross would happen at all. And I think in some ways, religious people are still doing that to Christ's body, the church, today. But I digress. Don't miss the irony here. God is charged with blasphemy. The author of life has been sentenced to death. The righteous judge has been judged by sinful man. Under a cloak of darkness, the light of the world has been arrested. And after an unjust trial, the way would lead to the cross. The life would be taken and the truth would seem dark. Worship team, if you guys would um, please lead us to the table. And we will follow you in just a moment. This is a sacred text in the Christian tradition, but don't miss the humanity of it as we read it today. Because when you feel all alone, when you feel an existential loneliness, when you feel like no one knows and no one cares and no one gets it, know that you are not alone. When you're maligned, when you're the victim of a system that is set out against you, when you are the subject of gossip, when you suffer at the hand of sinners, remember you are not alone. Jesus has walked that path. Jesus was betrayed by his friends. Jesus was betrayed by the system, but Jesus never failed. Jesus never lost his integrity. Jesus never sinned. Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. And Peter is trying to hide throughout the whole text, and we're a whole lot like Peter. We fail just like him. Church, I have good news this morning. The silent lamb is the roaring lion, and you will see him at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. We take it every other week. It's a, a sort of a significant um, part of our worship services. And I wanna confess something to you uh, about it uh, after I take a drink of water because I'm about to throw up again. <coughs> I don't like how we do it. I don't like how we do it. I wish we had one cup and I wish we all came forward and drank from that one cup, honestly. And I wish we were more aware, and I'm gonna challenge us to be this this morning. I wish we were more aware that we're doing this together. You're doing this with 
everybody in this room who's a Christian. This isn't you take your little cup and your little piece of bread and go into your private corner. This morning, it might seem awkward, but when you approach the table, when you take your elements, and when you walk away, you can take them at your seat, you can take them wherever you want to take it, I don't, I don't care. But I want you, before you take it, to look around the room. Because this is Christ's body. This is the church. And this is a meal that unites us. This is a meal that brings us together. Because there is one cup of salvation. There is one bread of life. And that is Jesus the Christ. If you're not a believer, Jesus went through all that we talked about this morning to reconcile us, to reconcile you to God. He loves you. He sees you. He cares about you. If you are a believer, your greatest challenge this morning isn't to know more about a passage that is familiar. Your greatest challenge this morning isn't to leave here and do better. Your greatest challenge this morning is to rest in the one who loves you, the one who died for you, and the one who Christ will come home to receive. Would you pray with me? Father, we marvel at Jesus this morning where so much spiritual growth happens when we take our eyes off ourselves and, and, and transfer our eyes to Christ. And so this morning, exalted in our text, we see Jesus, the innocent one accused of blasphemy. We see him like a lamb before his shearers stand silent. But like the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is calmly and confidently say, I am the Christ and you will see me at the right hand of God and you will see me coming in power. May we see this Jesus this morning. May we love this Jesus this morning. And may we leave with our hearts calibrated towards a better story, your story. In Christ's name we pray, amen.